Hi, I'm Gar Sanders. I'm Jamie Wincup. I'm James Courtney. Tony Delberto. Hi, I'm Rick Kelly. Hi, I'm Todd Kelly. Hi, I'm Lee Holdsworth. You're listening to V8 Insiders. It's your weekly dose of V8 news on the V8 Insiders. Now, here's your host, Craig Revell. Three race winners. Awesome start to the season. Like, I, I'd enjoy, I enjoyed today, there's no doubt about that. I think that, uh, that as I said, the big big winner was the Twilight. I was looking forward to this one because I had a good feeling. And, and um, you know, it all came together. HRT rebounds with Burgess. I've been pushing them fairly hard the last two months and uh, it's just great reward for everybody. And Volvo is fast. I swear on live TV I'll never ever do that again. Yeah, he's made, uh, I think he's made Volvo look cool now. That's all coming up today as the red lights go out on another edition of the V8 Insiders. You've taken the V8 to the races. you watch the action on TV. Now, read about them in V8X Magazine. V8X Magazine, dedicated to just one thing, V8 Supercars. Showcasing some of today's best writers and award-winning photographers, V8X brings you all the news and in-depth interviews demanded by today's V8 supercar fans in one action-packed magazine. V8X, the number one magazine in V8 supercar coverage. Out now. Here is the news brought to you by Nobrac Carbon Fibre Products. Check out the entire range today at www.nobrac.com.au. The restart rule changes were the talk of everyone following the massive Clipsal crash suffered by Jason Bright. The V8 Insider spoke to many on pit lane and you'll see a common theme emerging, starting with Jason Bright. The problem is everyone's doing a speed that's too slow for second gear and too fast for first gear, so you just break into wheel spin in first gear, which Jamie did. And um, you know, so you end up with cars three abreast going into a chicane that can only fit one car. And you know, I got a really good restart. I think I made like two rows. You know, we just, just ended up on the outside. You expect a sort of, you know, some guy in the middle who's being squeezed to back out of it, and they obviously didn't. Jason, does this sort of incident raise the question once again that you drivers need to get a consultative body together to be represented? I think, I think there's plenty of situations, you know, that, that warrant that. You know, and unfortunately it, it always comes across as, as uh, you know, they worry we're going to speak up too much. But I think at the end of the day, you know, the drivers only want what's good for them. You know, there's stuff that we can, you know, give to improve the racing too. Like that tyre bundle at Turn 1 should not be there. So if that tyre bundle was gone, the guy on the inside would have been able to jump the kerb and get out of our way. You know, and those that happens on a lot of different tracks. Um, and there's no real reason for it to be there, you know. So there's there's plenty of different situations like that that I think a driver's group could improve the racing, improve the safety. Garth Tander. Oh, it's easy to answer do we get enough do we get any um, input into anything? Or do we get enough? Well no we don't because we don't we get zero. Um, so I think it's pretty graphic evidence of, of that today. I don't think any driver would agree to the restart rule that we currently have and look what happened down at, at uh, turn one. So, um, yeah, I think um, there's a lot of decisions that are made that directly impact us and our safety and, um, and we've often tried to put our point of view forward and often offered our point of view and I've been part of that 
and it falls on deaf ears through one reason or another. I'm, I'm not sure what that is, but um, it's frustrating. Lee Holsworth. I mean, we said in driver's briefing here uh, before the weekend started that this was going to create absolute catastrophe at Turn 1, um, especially starting from such a low speed, you know, and it's all up to your engineer, whose engineer tells their driver to go, who's got the fastest uh, finger on the button um, as to as to when the, the lead car accelerates. So it's not up to the driver to enter to, to accelerate. That's that's the stupid thing, you know. It's not not what I call racing. It'd be good to if you. Um, I think the best way to do it would be to, to have the green lights go so we can all see it. Mark Winterbottom. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think blokes that sit in air conditioning offices probably need to get out and actually have a look at what goes on you know what what happened to Brody is he's lucky he walked away you know there's this big you know a lot of credit goes to the the way they're built but um you know a piece of debris flies off and it's a spectator or something it's just ridiculous so you try and you know in the driver's briefing try and question it and try and come up with a solution um get shut down and you get told to do it and then something happens and then they reverse it you know sometimes they need to listen and just uh, yeah, it's your safety out there, and that you don't want to see that. That's ridiculous. What happened to to Brady then? And it was always going to happen, I think. Todd Kelly, and it all almost looks a little bit clumsy when you have a couple of blokes that don't quite get the jump, and there's cars spraying everywhere and hitting hitting each other uh, up the bum. I, I don't think that's a good look. Um, unless the fans think it's fantastic, it, it uh, certainly don't think it is from the driver's seat. It's um, it's probably not the best way to start a race when you can potentially have quite a big crash before you even get to the first corner which we almost saw a few times. Gary Rogers and Brad Jones both have share a background from the NASCAR Oscar days and they both have a different take on how the restart should be run. The, the restart system has never been any good. They need to have double file rest- or starts, forget the restarts, the starts should all, other than Bathurst, should all be rolling starts side by side Get the, the, the whoever's got pole as, as the pace setter. When the pace car t- pulls off at whatever point, they've got the flag waver there ready with the flag. The pace car pulls off. They maintain the speed. The minute the, the minute the, the person that's been on pole goes, everyone goes, and you race, and it will work absolutely. You know all the pedantics we have about restarts with with Rick and um, and Shane jumping a little bit early. The Red Bull guys are involved in a lot like we were and a lot of the restart stuff and so they knew not to speed up but what that did was that made the HRT cars prop and because everyone said go when Shane went then they end up with a bit of a concertina so you end up with three or four cars all side by side in turn one and this is the result. So, you know, are you better to go back to the old system and just let them go on the back straight? It's certainly not as exciting for the fans but I also think if it was a two-by-two two start, then we wouldn't have had this action either. So I don't know what the answer is. I mean, we will definitely be having a good look at it at the commission. We can't be having this sort of damage all year. So um, it's unfortunate. You know, if, if the Red Bull cars had gone when the other two went, I don't know that there'd be so many people trying to get in. Ryan Walkinshaw gave us his views on driver consultation. It's, it's one of those things, it's motorsport. I'm just glad that Brody's okay. Um, that was a pretty fair hit. Um, you know, uh, 
there is a fair amount of involvement with drivers and, and, and teams, obviously, with the safety, but you know, there's always more you can do. You know, the absolute prime focus of any sport like this should be the driver's safety first and foremost. So uh, you know, anything that any of us can do to try and, uh, to try and make that better uh, is something we should all be focusing on and, and, uh, and trying to fix. The first race of the season, well, it was won by Red Bull Racing's Jamie Winkup, who showed that even with the changes to his crew structure, he's not going to allow any excuses to enter why he would not challenge for a sixth title. Yeah, Lounsey had an issue in the uh, in the first race in the pit stop, so that um, that sort of took took some of the battle out of it. He was coming on strong, so we've um, little, little little rusty for for round one, but we'll, we'll sort that out. Craig Lowndes took out race two. So for us, it was a pretty boring race in the sense of being out front and uh, you know in clean air, which is where you need to be, especially around a track like this. But the highlight of the race was Scott McLaughlin's barnstorming run to second place in the Volvo. On the way here, I was like, wow, and um, and I'm seriously so stoked and so appreciative of all our fans and who's bought shirts and we've sold out of merchandise. It's amazing, and uh, you know, I really uh, we can't do this without them. The sport wouldn't be here, and. Um, I'm very appreciative of all that and, um, you know, happy to be having, standing next to these two blokes who are legends of sport. On Sunday, James Courtney turned around a disappointing Saturday to take the Clipsal 500 trophy. It's definitely been a big couple of uh, months, but, uh, but look, I, you know, we've got 100% faith in, in uh, ATB. That's why I was you know, pretty pumped that he, he came on board and, and um, you know, it's just the tip of the iceberg. We're... Uh, polishing a, uh, a nugget at the moment. We've got plenty of work that we have to do to be able to match these guys weekend, weekend out. Adrian Burgess was asked by the V8 Insiders that if change is as good as a holiday, what's the result of having both? Yeah, yeah it's great. Yeah, I just sat around with my feet up for six months. No, look, guys, uh, you know, these things don't come without hard work. I can't thank oh, everyone yeah, enough. Uh, I've been pushing them fairly hard the last two months, and uh, this is just great reward for everybody, and this shows the guys what we can achieve if we uh, get our head down and yeah, do a good job on the day. Jason Bright's car has been written off by the BJR team. Jones told the V8 Insiders about how far along the spare chassis was. Just got a bare chassis, needs another day's work on it before it's finished. Jamie Winkup was docked 25 points in race three following his contact with Michael Caruso. Will Davison and James Moffat, they spoke to the V8 Insiders about their contact in race three. Certainly gutted with today. I was just trying to be um, really clean and smart and uh, just get laps in the car and obviously to be turfed into the fence at turn eight is just unacceptable and uh, dangerous, goes against everything, you know, the drivers. Um, generally, you know, the protocol we have at turn eight and, uh, yeah, not on and just shouted for the guys, a crash car, I really didn't deserve that. So, um, you know, I'm fine, all good. You know, it's going to be an up and down year, but, um, yeah, that was certainly... Um, put a real damper on what was a great weekend something I think we all enjoyed the vibe Davidson got a run on me out of turn 7 and uh, got up the inside of me but you know turn 8 you obviously can't go too wide through there and um, you know I had to turn in at some point and you know unfortunately we just just clipped the back of his car certainly wasn't intentional but uh, he sort of hung me out to dry a bit and gave me nowhere to go so um, yeah look we got a penalty for it and I sort of feel like the penalty might have been based on the size of the accident rather than the actual incident so uh you know if that sort of incident had happened at turn four turn five there would have been nothing of it so uh off the track james warburton gave his first press conference with a state of the series address on day one there was you know three or four key issues that i wrote to the team owners and said here's my focus and here's the things that we're going to do i presented in detail uh, to the team owners 
first 90-day plan, the second 90-day plan, and they've got another one in terms of the next quarter. So I think we're fundamentally, you know, it was about consolidation and it was ensuring that we had the groundwork under us and the structural stuff done to take us forward and to take us into a level of growth. And so, you know, really, that's what the six months was about and providing certainty and providing a direction. And, you know, you, you, you know them all. Um, and I believe the team in place has, you know, given them a level of confidence as we head forward that hadn't been there for a little while. You can hear more from Warburton's comments on this week's White Flag Lab. Finally, Verdex magazine is on sale now. You can see what new columnist Gary Rogers is expecting from his Volvo team throughout the rest of the season and what happened to the tracks the V8 calendar forgot. It's on sale now in stores, online, and check out the great new V8X app at v8x.com.au. On this week's roundtable, Lewis Isaacs and Chris Jewell discuss the start of the year. But that's the news on the V8 Insiders. Brought to you by Nobrack Carbon Fibre Products. Check out their entire range today at www.nobrack.com.au. News on the V8 Insiders is brought to you by the official V8X Magazine Facebook page. Sign up and keep in touch with V8 Supercars. You've taken the V8 to the races. you watch the action on TV. Now, read about them in V8X Magazine. V8X Magazine, dedicated to just one thing, V8 Supercars. Showcasing some of today's best writers and award-winning photographers, V8X brings you all the news and in-depth interviews demanded by today's V8 Supercar fans in one action-packed magazine. V8X, the number one magazine in V8 Supercar coverage. Out now. The views expressed on V8 Insiders, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect those of the network, Thunder Media, sportradio.com.au or V8X Magazine. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. Hi, I'm Lee Holdsworth. You're listening to V8 Insiders. Welcome back to the V8 Insiders. Joining us this week from Auto Action, it's Lewis Isaacs. Good evening, Lewis. Evening, Craig. How are you? I'm not doing too bad. All the better for recent racing, I think, is what Roy and HG say. Don't they, Chris Jewell? Very much so. Very much indeed. Hello to you too. Chris, uh, obviously a, a special weekend for you. You've had a long involvement with Scott McLaughlin and to have brought him to Gary Rogers Motorsport encouraged his career the way it has to stay with uh, the team when they changed to Volvo. To see him on the podium, what did that mean? Uh, yeah, it was um, quite surreal, to be quite honest. I don't think anybody, not even uh, Scott, actually expected that was going to happen. We set performance targets of P12 being equivalent to pole, but he was quietly confident after uh, assessing the directional change in the car from um, Sydney Motorsport Park that it was going to be a good thing there. But, yeah, it was just such a, uh, a moment of exultation and almost disbelief in many ways. But you never give them back, and uh, that moment on Saturday evening, at least uh, before he got out of the car, was uh, ranks as highly as any moment that I can ever recall. Championship wins with different drivers, be it Jason Bright, Greg Murphy's 2068, etc., Fabian Coulthard and Carrera Cup, and Scott's uh, emergence as a V8 supercar star on the back of his Dunlop series back in 2012. But as he said, it's about the best place, uh, second place he's ever had in his life, and it probably matched some of the first place finishes he's had. I'm still getting over it. Mm. And, and Lewis, uh, the way he handled himself, the slip-up on TV adds to the uh, now legend that is the, the first race of Volvo in V8 supercars. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's that kind of personality that's really endeared him to a lot of fans. And you have to think, you know, what 
Gary Rogers, Volvo and himself did that afternoon, especially against Jamie, has probably given them more great publicity, or Volvo that is, than a lot of the world's best PR and advertising firms could. Interestingly, Lewis, Jamie Winkup did win the first race and what has fascinated me over this Adelaide weekend was the... We, we've seen for a number of years now the social media and the, the you know, the absolute... Um, canning that he and and red bull can get from time to time on social media but to hear the crowd boo when he made the pass on scott mclaughlin and then the next day to hear the crowd cheer when they heard a pit lane drive-through penalty was going against jamie it's it's a sight of sport and society that i'm not comfortable with no and i agree there he's a great champion and he's um easily the benchmark among the field, but, you know, every good narrative's got a villain, and, and Jamie is that guy in V8 supercars. So when, when Scott went past him, it wasn't just a great triumph for Volvo, it was a great triumph for the sport. Chris, do you see it in those sort of terms? Yeah, look, I mean, success in sport polarises so many people, but success in motorsport for, for different reasons, potentially the demographic that, uh, that our audience consists of, it, uh, it's amazing how uh, people actually become very anti someone who's having a higher level of success. And I guess if in any other sporting sense um, we saw a continual domination of one team or one entity continually winning, we may have a similar outcome. But you don't see it in tennis. Uh, the Roger Federer's and the Ra- uh, Rafael Nadal's, uh, they're all revered. Uh, but certainly in red bull colours over the last 20 months, anybody who's been doing winning on a consistent basis tends to cop the jeers and boos from the crowd. But like, I don't think any of it is... He's of a despicable nature or vitriolic in any sense. I just think it's a bit of a tall poppy thing where the crowd are looking for something a little bit new and who's to say at next week's Australian Grand Prix if a Sergio Perez or somebody else ends up climbing onto the top step of the podium, a similar outcome will probably permeate. But I don't read too much into it, to be honest. He's certainly not disliked. He's respected for his accomplishments. But it's a bit of tall poppy stuff, isn't it, really? No, I'm wondering if it is, uh, if it might go further in society than tall poppy syndrome. I don't know of any stories of people booing Bradman before he made another century. And that's where we're getting to this uh, vehement attack on uh, Jamie Winkup, Lewis. But you did see Sebastian Vettel getting booed last year during a number of Formula One rounds as well. So there, there is a precedent, I guess, against success getting booed in, in certain circles, particularly motorsport. Mm. And, and unlike a lot of sports, Chris, where we have people being attacked and, and booed and jeered, for doing something wrong, we're talking about someone who's, you know, just going about his business. Yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, I understand your point of view and I sympathise as well and, and I think it is just society-driven, to be quite honest. I mean, everybody likes the underdog and the Volvo, who is a quintessential underdog in the hands of any person, but the fact that uh, it was ultimately in the hands of a, a bright young thing that uh, is uber-natural every time he gets out of the car to the point of dropping the F-bomb inclusive... Um, as Lewis said, you couldn't possibly want a better publicity stunt than that one. And it wasn't a stunt, it was real. And, um, yeah, I think we should just focus on the uh, on the positives of what was achieved uh, on the weekend as opposed to the negatives, because I don't think they'll last forever. And Jamie will have his say by uh, holding up many trophies during the course of the year and potentially even challenging for a sixth championship. Mm. Well, of course, on Saturday, it really was the Volvo story. On Sunday, it was HRT. And, of course, once again, backstories on James Courtney's win was absolutely fantastic. We saw a situation where we had 
Adrian Burgess leading the HRT team to, even in their opinion, a very early victory in the uh, rebuilding of that team, Chris? Yeah, you're right. It was a bit of a match made in heaven. Uh, Courtney hasn't been particularly successful at Holden Racing Team, and he his championship position last year was uh, was clearly a misnomer on the back of him receiving that injury after that horrible accident at Phillip Island, up until Bathurst, in fact, and Sandown. Uh, he was sitting in the top five in the championship, but I think it's fantastic. The that supercar as a category needs Holden Racing Team to win and to have a win on the streets of Adelaide in the state where they've been building their cars for so long and on the back of what's going on in the Australian automotive market. Uh, it was a real fairy tale and uh, to be a first time out for Adrian Burgess to take up where he left off when uh, he helped James score that championship win back in 2010, to my mind it was, uh, it was quite astounding. I, I just thought it was fantastic and here I was on Sunday morning uh, doing a radio interview with... Uh, with our good friend Tony Shebeki saying, I think the disappointment of the weekend thus far is HRT. So I had to drag both of my size nines out of my mouth because not only did they win, uh, James held off a very fast car driven by a virtuoso on the streets of Adelaide in Craig Lowndes to take that victory. So hats off to HRT and cars look great. Good people in that team. It runs deeper than Adrian Burgess because you've got Matty Checo Nielsen there as well and also uh, Engineer X Techno on, on board. So I hope it is the start of a continued upsurgence in form. Now we just need to give some love to uh, Garth Tander's car and see if he can get up there as well. Mm. And uh, interestingly, Lewis, we see Fabian Coulthard at the end of the weekend from consistency and good pace up there, second place in the championship, uh, although he didn't make the podium. He's there and thereabouts, and as we know, that's what you need in this championship. Yeah, well, it's a marked difference from where he was at this race one year ago. Last year we saw BHAR had the pace, but, but he obviously fell a bit foul. And, um, you know, he, you're right, he wasn't on the podium, but he's second. And he's going into Tassie, which is a, a race where he scored his first win last year. So that'll keep him. That'll give him a lot of confidence. And also the Grand Prix in between, and, and he, he was quite quick there as well. He, I, I believe he ended up winning a race. So mm. it, it's good for him. It's kept him in contention because last year, you know, missing a big point all that first race, he was never quite there in the championship battle. So this will uh, keep him going a bit longer, hopefully. Mm, and, and the points is almost in this misnomer, and you actually have a look at it, um, because there's such big points available for one race on Sunday and the other two races being split in half in distance also in points. So when you actually look at the championship point score, Craig Lowndes has got a really good start underway, and obviously Fabian, Mark Winterbottom, Shane Van Gisbergen are in the mix along with James Courtney, but... Uh, without harping too much on about Scott McLaughlin, eight laps from home in third place. He'd have been second in the championship if he'd maintained that position. And many other drivers who finished the race in and around the top ten who didn't score well on Saturday have a whole host of points that sees them somewhere in the reckoning. And one of those is not Jamie Wincup. So it's a very strange-looking point score based on car speed impacted directly by the carnage that ensued on Sunday. Mm. And also, you know, Jason Bright will talk about his accident in the next uh, segment, but... One thing he was able to say is, well, ironically, I'm coming out of the race this year with more points than I had last year, although uh, he's had a a much bigger crash at the end of it. So uh, I do want to speak to you, Lewis, about the splitting of the Saturday race. Now, I know television figures-wise, I think uh, from the early figures that came in, it was about 40,000 more viewers in the evening race than the afternoon race. But, gee, it's... It really did change the whole feel to Saturday. It, yeah, I thought the first weight race, a lot of people took a fairly conservative approach, knowing that that second one was right up there. And the second one was great. We're, we're still talking about it now. And uh, 
what everyone enjoyed was the finish. I'm, I'm still undecided whether I think it was the, the right move or not. I think Sunday showed the, the long races are really great at that particular track. But I don't mind Fiat Supercars being innovative in the formats. It, it's good that something different was tried, but perhaps doing it the first race of the year wasn't necessarily the greatest idea they've had. Mm. Certainly the Twilight Race, Chris, is an, is an idea. It's a solid idea. It has a lot of merit, but at the moment, in this last year of the television deal, it is it is tough for them because they have what they call network news that they have to work their race around. Yeah, you're right, and uh, I'm a stickler for tradition. I must admit I do prefer the two 250k races on each day, Saturday and Sunday, and I think Sunday yet again vindicated uh, just what, what sorts of scenarios can be thrown up in a long race on that track, in any category for that matter. The track, for whatever reason, since its inception in Formula 1, Back in 85, in every category, it's always had great racing take place. But if only we could find a way to, uh, to run the races outside of the news time, and that would potentially result in us finishing in the dark. And that may not be a bad thing. Certainly it comes at a high cost. But I felt that it was just a little bit too much of a compromise for my liking, regardless of the viewership increase. And you're right, trying something new is great. But, um, yeah, I like the two 250K stints uh, in isolation of each other. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I still felt that Saturday was very flat because it was those two short races and and even you know you're speaking to Jamie after the race yes I've won but I've got another race I've got to concentrate on I can't enjoy it because I've still got more work to do yeah exactly you've just got you've got more work to do and it sort of it gave me the feel that it was a nothing race yeah real-time qualifying that's all it was yeah um we need to take a break on the V8 Insiders but as everyone knows there's a lot more to talk about on the other side Controversy Corner is next when we return with more on the V8 Insiders. Find out more about your favourite supercar teams and drivers when we go inside further on the V8 Insiders. You've taken the V8 to the races. you watch the action on TV. Now read about them in V8X Magazine. V8X Magazine, dedicated to just one thing, V8 Supercars. Showcasing some of today's best writers and award-winning photographers, V8X brings you all the news and in-depth interviews demanded by today's V8 Supercar fans in one action-packed magazine. V8X, the number one magazine in V8 Supercar coverage. Out now. Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. You're listening to V8 Insiders. Welcome back to the V8 Insiders. Lewis Isaacs and Chris Jewell joining me, Craig Ravel. And, and guys, safety in V8 Supercars. We saw last year just how safe the car of the futures can be with Scott Pye's accident and, of course, James Courtney's accident, which you alluded to, Chris, earlier. But, uh, gee, Jason Bright, once again, another big accident, his second big accident for the year. His first rollover in his career, which uh, is remarkable because uh, most racing drivers are taught you'll have one a year for your entire uh, racing career. So to have his first one in, um, what is it, got to be getting towards 20 years of him racing? 25. Yeah. Yeah. He's an old bugger. He's 41 this year, hey? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, look, it was a pretty sizable shunt. Uh, Initially, the the trip-to-be-tipped type scenario prevailed, and... Uh, and then it dug in pretty badly, and I think the real key was when it actually landed on one of the right rear corners uh, on the wheel itself and then launched back into the air. That will have tremored right through the car, and then when they land upside down with the engine uh, plummeting into the earth, very rarely do the cars come out of those ones very well, and I was initially 
uh, surprised at, uh, at Brad Jones' observations of going to the local BOC gas and gear store and getting their stuff they need to fix it and straighten it out because as soon as I saw that and secondary impact uh, when it bounced high in the air, I, I knew what would have happened as far as the diagonal damage to that car and I didn't expect it was ever going to be a race car again and that's how it's turned out. Ultimately, fortunately, they have a spare car there. But testimony to, that, uh, to the strength of that car because it started on the bitumen, it made contact with the debris fence, it landed back upside down on both dirt and bitumen at the same time and Bridie got out unscathed. Uh, in fact, he was better off than he was when he had a wall clanger sideways in the Audi R8 up at uh, Mount Panorama for the Bathurst 12 hours. So, yeah, I think we've had two genuine reflections of exactly how safe these cars are, and that was the catalyst behind going to the new generation V8 supercar, not including some of the technical componentry. Safety was first and foremost. Mm. And, Lewis, the accident came about by what has now blown up across V8 supercars, the restart rule or as uh, uh, we in the media like to call it, the action zone restarts. Yeah, it's um, you, you wonder how much thought was actually given to that restart at that particular track because, you know, all the drivers had their own separate interpretations of what was going to go on and then when three went into that first corner, it was clear that chaos was going to ensue. Um, it, it's great, again, that people are, are willing to try different things for restarts, but... This one in particular, the 60k zone, you could tell it was going to be bad from the start when teams had spotters on the on the wall telling them when people had gone. It was, yeah, it was very interesting. And what I found fascinating was on Saturday morning, and the Nissan GT Academy press conference was about to go ahead, but the drivers' briefing was, or drivers and teams' briefing was immediately before it. And after all the teams had left, it was Jamie and and his guys that were still in there with Jason Barguana trying to get their head around all the, you know, all the things that V8 Supercar were trying to put in place for the restart. And I think they would have been there for at least 10 more minutes arguing the point about the, uh, the restart rule and just trying to get it in their own understanding how it was going to be policed and how it was going to work. But, Chris, as you said, oh, sorry, as Lewis said, it became... A, a situation where because you could overlap as soon as that went green and the and leader had jumped it didn't matter where you were in the line you were going on on your spotter's command yeah well, the problem is it's a funnel effect isn't it you know you have three directional changes before you leave the center chicane you initially turn left then you glance right across the curb and go left again up to the top of turn four and you know, you look at where rolling restarts have uh, initially come from and double-file NASCAR starts. They don't go into a corner where they break and change down gear and change direction three times. So I think it had to be Einstein to work out was always going to be fairly fought. And then you throw into the equation that damn tyre bundle that's been the, uh, the debate for so very long on the left-hand side of Turn 1. Remove that and potentially Tanda had somewhere to go and he wouldn't have managed to find a way into the side of Jason Bright. But I didn't expect anything different as far as there being drama down at Turn 1. Didn't expect it was going to result in a rollover because you very rarely see that. But yeah, for that to be something that uh, prevailed in a 500k race weekend, in a 250k race on the Sunday, uh, just astounded me. I, I, I'm not at all surprised about the outcries. Uh, I expect there could well have been an even bigger outcry had it have happened to some of the bigger teams in the sport and some of the individuals who are very much behind the entertainment factor of what V8 Supercar needs to be. Yes, it made the news. Yes, the crowd was cheering, but assess the total damage bill across all cars, not just Jason Bright, and the loss of those cars from the field, and uh, and I think it needs a complete rethink. Yes, we can charge down to the Turn 1 at Barbagallo, 
Hidden Valley, even Phillip Island for that matter at over 270 kilometres an hour. But Crystal 500, 400 metres to a left, right, left? Nah, not enough, not enough fit. And, and Lewis, it's been announced, we're having double file starts and rolling restarts at the Grand Prix. Yeah, well, uh, if you watch the um, the TCM races, they also had double file starts, and uh, it only took them until their second one for someone to get that very wrong. So there's there is an inherent risk in that. But we had double file restarts last year during some of the um, the the sixty sixty races, and you know there were there were mixed responses to that. But maybe at Albert Park, the longer straight, it could be something that works out. It's interesting, Lewis, when you speak to team owners, you speak to uh, different people in the garages. A very, very uh, definitive split between rolling restarts and and st- rolling restarts with the AZ boards because let's face it, they always start as a rolling restart. So the rolling restarts with the AZ boards as the controlling line or as a controlling factor, and the old rule, which was the leader went when the uh, safety car was in the the pit lane. And from what I could tell from my straw poll, if you came from a NOSCAR NASCAR background you are much more willing to accept the restart procedure that's now in place than if you've come from a, a traditional road racing background, to the point where, as people heard in the, um, in the news earlier, that even uh, Brad Jones still believes that the AEZ restart rules is a good thing for the sport. Well, that, that surprises me because, you know, considering he is the one that's going to foot the bill for that massive crash, you know, it, it's strange that he would still back that. But the rolling restarts, they're in bad supercars because they're so new. They seem fairly, uh, I hesitate to use the word, but somewhat artificial. I like the uh, the one behind the safety car. It's what they use in Formula One as well, and it seems less chaos seems to occur when that goes on. Mm. Chris, your thoughts? Yeah, look, I think we should have it at certain events, but there needs to be a fairly detailed analysis of the track configuration and also what's at stake. Um, 60-60 restarts, very minimal points on offer. You know, we're talking about Jason Bright being out of championship hunt and many other drivers having their weekends compromised because the punishment is so severe when you drop out of a 250k race and or, of course, a 500k race. What next? Double file rolling restarts at Mount Panorama? Not going to happen. I just think that it was short-sighted to be doing it uh, at the Cripsville 500. I'm all for it being at some of those other tracks, but... No, just can't cop that one, I'm sorry. Mm. Well, uh, just before we leave, uh, I would like to ask, because we saw um, we saw some very interesting speed trap results across the weekend, and already there's a, a couple of teams that are starting to ask the question, is the engine rules even for everyone across the sport? And uh, Lewis, are we going to end up by uh, mid-season getting into a very expensive engine war? Well, we had the aero war to the end of last year, which is uh, it's still playing out, I guess. But the engine one's interesting. You know, obviously the Polestar we saw was, was quite interesting or quite fast in a straight line. Nissan, they're probably still not there, and Erebus has taken their package in-house. So, you know, there is a lot of important st- uh, stress on these engines. But I guess we'll have to um, go to a high-speed track like the Grand Prix and, and the other ones that follow up to, to really see if there's more in that debate. Mm. What about you, Chris? Well, I think, uh, Key, when you look at the uh, Polestar performance, it's not about engine power. It has the smallest frontal area of any car by some margin. If you actually look at them on the grid side by side on the front row and Scott qualified second, it looks like a DTM car sitting alongside a Commodore. It makes a Nissan look like a barge, and God help us if the Mercedes uh, had got... Sorry, the uh, Chrysler car had got in, as uh, proposed last year. It's got a tiny frontal area, 
low centre of gravity and it just has less wind resistance. Laterally, it's a coupe with four doors and, uh, and there'll need to be some aerodynamic assessments take place as opposed to engine performance assessments. Having said that, the fact is that that engine's built by a bunch of ex-Formula 1 engineers who are involved in the Yamaha Formula 1 project, which while may not have been particularly successful in Formula 1 guys, it's obviously got pretty good performance characteristics underneath the bonnet and it's a tiny little Swiss watch to boot, so they can actually move ballasts where the car needs to have ballast to make sure it's a better widget. You don't have to look at the speed of the Volvo through Turn 8 and see the road-holding capabilities it had to see where their top speed down, the, down at that part of the straight section of the circuit came from. So I don't know how you assess an inherently better-shaped car, uh, short of putting you know, barge boards all over it and slowing it down. Maybe the freedoms have to come to the other cars around them to try and take some downforce out of those so they can compete on equal footing. But right now, uh, it would seem that the pole stars are a pretty good widget and maybe Gary knew that all along. Mm. And, uh, and of course, uh, we often see a situation where a teammate has a great day, the other teammate is beset with problems, and that's exactly what happened in the pole star garage last weekend, Lewis. Well, I think that's still got a lot to do with it being Robert's first race. You know, we, we see it time and time again that these cars are so hard to adjust to and that even someone like Dale Ward, who stepped up from the Dunlop series, didn't have the the ideal weekend. And, and Robert's still learning. He didn't know the track. He's only had a handful of hours, really, in the car. And compared to the other guys, that was always going to be the case. that He'd be towards the end. Uh, Chris, your thoughts? Well, I think he'll be okay. I would love to have seen Alex Pramar in that car last weekend, going into his third Clipsal 500 with Gary Rogers Motorsport and having improved significantly in performance last year, but we haven't got that. But if you really do drill down to the and do a detailed analysis of the lap times that Volgren uh, was doing when his car was actually running uh, as well as it should have, he wasn't that far away. In fact, in one of the races there, his fastest lap was only a couple of tenths away from Scott McLaughlin's. But um, it will take some time. It certainly will, but... Uh, he's a capable racing driver, and let's hope that he can make a good fist of it. But I, I, I did, I did feel very sorry for uh, Alex Pramar that he didn't turn up for another year here. But you have to understand uh, some of the background commercialities of some of these decisions. And uh, Robert's the man incumbent in the spot. Yep, that's exactly right. Chris, thanks very much for your time. Uh, look forward to catching up with you again uh, very soon. No worries, thanks, Craig. And Lewis, all the best. And uh, I guess uh, you're going to be uh, full on down there at the uh, Grand Prix this uh, in two weeks' time. Yep, at the Grand Prix, and for the next ten or so months, I assume. <laughs> the white flag lap is up next here on the V8 Insiders. You've taken the V8 to the races. You watch the action on TV. Now read about them in V8X Magazine. V8X Magazine, dedicated to just one thing: V8 supercars. Showcasing some of today's best writers and award-winning photographers, V8X brings you all the news and in-depth interviews demanded by today's V8 supercar fans in one action-packed magazine. V8X, the number one magazine in V8 supercar coverage. Out now. Hi, I'm Rick Kelly. You're listening to V8 Insiders. On this week's White Flag Lap, brought to you by Munro Shock Absorbers, we hear from James Warburton on his thoughts on where the series is currently. Set on day one. In, in a note to the team owners and again to, to, to many of you in the media that there was a few key objectives. First and foremost, to return this business to its historical highs of profitability as quickly as possible. To reverse commercial outcomes which were going the wrong way, which we've done. To have unity through the business, both with team owners and V8 supercars and then to get the lifeblood of sponsorship and support and income back into this uh, championship. I think from a sales point of view and from a sponsorship and support point of view, 
quite often you don't get credit for renewing sponsors because it's not new news, but the reality is we've retained all of our major partnerships, again, for a minimum of three to five years. That's six uh, in total that have, that have come up or expired, if you like, through um, 13 and 14 that have been renewed. We've signed nine new sponsors and we will have between four and six that will roll out over the next couple of months. I think from my point of view and having been, you know, spending a bit of time in the television industry, this without doubt is the best kept secret to mainstream markets. This is the best integrated product. The media side of it, the ratings, the television, sure. But the absolute events and ability to activate are quite extraordinary and we need to get more aggressive in pushing our, pushing our barrier there. I think in terms of 2015, we've been very clear that um, we want to head back into the international stage. So we want to expand, obviously, beyond our New Zealand event. And I'd like to say today that we have ambitions for a minimum of one and a maximum of three international races to go in our calendar for 2015. Of course, you know about Circuit of the America. Uh, we have four years left on that contract, and that's a contract that we uh, will honour. In addition to that, and, ag and again has been... Yeah, widely reported. Uh, we went to America, we met with a lot of people. Tim Sindrick, president of, um, of Penske Racing, set up a lot of good meetings for us and we had you know, great reception over there. I mean, how we're regarded on the, on the international stage is quite extraordinary in terms of what they think from a racing point of view. So we've got a lot to do there. The economic benefit of a twin, I mean, it's freight cost, flying planes and everything else across. The economic benefit of a twin is something that you know, really we're investigating, investigating hard. I think in addition to that, there's five other countries that we're dealing with or talking to uh, about extending again uh, the, our international um, coverage. I think very importantly, we have to do a better job at activating locally. These events have to be sustainable on the ground with our promoters, and you know, that's what we're, that we're working towards. The only caveat I want to put on international is if we need more time, then we'll take it. So, as I say, minimum of one, maximum of four, but we've got to get the model right and we've got to make sure that these are sustainable long-term events. We'll be in a position by about the middle of the year to give a clear indication as to what our international plans are and, of course, as we release the calendar for 2015 around Sandown, uh, we'll be, be even clearer in terms of what's on and what's not. I think further afield, uh, we've signed four MOUs in terms of new developments, new track, new developments, lots of you know, press and um, you know, the, the like out there around things like tail and bend, etc. But the reality is we will do our absolute utmost to support new developers and new permanent circuits. In addition, we want to be known to be assisting CAMS, and particularly Eugene and his regime there at CAMS, with the heritage circuits. It's not something for V8 supercars, but we'll throw all of our resources behind these guys in terms of track design, in terms of uh, presentations, taking them to government to really assist them so that when we do our rounds and we leave, that the benefit is there in economic stimulus. There's lots of stadiums built, you know, there's lots of that type of thing going on, but the economic stimulus that motorsport provides for those circuits and those communities 365 days of the year is quite extraordinary. So I think what you're hearing today, you know, is probably some measured confidence you know, about where we're heading and what we're going to do and what we're going to do. We're going to be a little bit 
That's all we have time for on this week's show as the Checker Flag waves over another edition of the V8 Insiders. Till next time round, keep smiling and bye for now. Join us next week for more V8 Insiders, only on v8x.com.au.